0: If Jesus Christ is king, and we just saying that He was, "You are my king, my king has died for me." If Jesus Christ is king of a newly inna- <clears throat> excuse me, of a newly inaugurated kingdom, then why is there so much overt and even growing opposition to His ministry on earth? So in the life of Christ and the ministry of Christ, why aren't most people, at least? A simple majority, trusting in Jesus and following him. What sort of king allows opposition to go unchecked? What sort of kingdom allows its enemies to live and even flourish within its borders? What kingdom will last very long if those who are working against it are allowed to live and flourish and even seem to be definitely in the majority? And so in the ministry of Jesus Christ, as we get to Matthew 13... Christ has shifted his public teaching ministry because of growing opposition. He goes from open, straightforward public preaching and teaching to a more cryptic form of teaching. He begins teaching publicly in parables and then explaining the parables privately to his disciples. And the reason he does this is because the crowds have repeatedly refused to trust and follow him. And so parables have become a form of judgment against those who have refused to repent and follow Christ as king. So Christ purposely conceals the truth from the crowds, but reveals the truth to his disciples. And all of that is done in fulfillment of prophecy. And so right here in Matthew 13, we will skip over some parts that I just talked about. In the fulfillment of prophecy, parables play a very important role. And I did it again this week. I went forward from Matthew 13 to the end of Matthew, and I looked for straightforward teaching from Jesus Christ to the crowds. And I challenge you just to do that kind of search yourself to see if that happens. I couldn't find one place explicitly where Christ openly teaches to the crowds. Many times you'll see him ministering to the crowds, but not teaching. And then when he does teach, he again begins to use parables. But with his disciples and with his followers, he has very explicit open teaching, not only in explaining the parables, but in teaching all things. And so this is what happens based upon the fact that the crowds have refused to follow him. And so this this judgment he gives is a judgment of parables. And so this section begins at the beginning of chapter 13. And Jesus has already given the famous parable of the sower beginning in the first part of chapter 13. And today we're going to pick up where we left off in August. Can you believe it's been August since we've been in Matthew? But we're picking up where we left off. And we're going to start today in Matthew 13 and verse 24 with the parable of the weeds. Before we look to that scripture, let's pray together. Our Father, we understand that only through your Spirit can we understand the Word of God. Your Spirit must reveal your truth to us. If not, for the work of the Holy Spirit, it will be concealed even this morning. The truth will just go right over our heads. We will not understand. We will not perceive. We will not be changed. So we once again submit ourselves to the work of your Spirit through your Word to open our eyes, open our ears, change our hearts, and soften our hearts to receive from you the truth that is everlasting. We ask you to do this. For your glory, for your name, and for our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to start reading Matthew 13 in verse 24, and then in a minute we'll, we'll go to verse 36, but follow along in your Bible as I read Matthew 13, 24 and following. He, that is Jesus, put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. Last in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow up together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. Now skip down to verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. This is God's divine revelation to us this morning, His inspired and inerrant word. May we listen to it. The theme of this passage before us this morning is this. King Jesus explains to His disciples why there is a delay in the full consummation of the kingdom of heaven. So the king of the kingdom of heaven, King Jesus, is explaining to his disciples why there is a delay in the full consummation of that kingdom. And he does so in the explanation or the deliberation of explaining the parable of the weeds. Some of you would know that as the parable of the wheat and tares. Uh, Not terrors, but tares, which are called weeds. Now just a, a word of explanation before we dig in. A parable is when a common observable object or practice was used to illustrate a subjective truth or principle. And in Christ's ministry, it would illustrate a spiritual truth. So parables are illustrations, not stories. So many people want to uh, follow Jesus Christ and his preaching and teaching by always telling stories because they see what Christ did with the parables as storytelling. But they're not stories. They are illustrations. And parables only make sense if they are explained. So the fact that Jesus only explains, to him, explains them to his disciples is key to understanding Jesus' use of them. So there's a distinct division in this passage between the crowds and the disciples, between them and us. And so you'll see that right in verse 24. He, Jesus, put another parable before them. Who is the them? Go back to chapter 13, verse 1. Actually, verse 2, and great crowds gathered about him. And then verse 3, he told them many things in parables. And so he's speaking to the crowds, them. And then in verse 36, you'll see that he left the crowds, them, and went to the house, and his disciples came to him. And then he explained this to the disciples. So we have to see the distinction so that we understand that parables are not a form to, to follow it as illustrations for us, or not an example for pastors to follow. Because parables are a form of judgment on those who have refused to follow Christ. So don't follow Christ's example in preaching in parables, or you'll leave the people of God ignorant of the truth. Stories without an explanation just leave us confused. And so he doesn't explain them to the crowds. He only explains them to his disciples. And the point is this. Why is there a delay in the full consummation of the kingdom of heaven? If the king has come, why are things so bad now? Why is there still in this world so much wickedness? If the king has come, if the kingdom has been inaugurated, if Jesus Christ rules and reigns, why are things so bad? Have you thought about that? If Christ is king, and Christ is God, and he rules and reigns, why does it look so often like he is losing in this world? Why does it look so often as if wickedness is triumphing if the king has come? So the commentator R.T. France, I believe, summarizes it very well about what Christ is teaching here. This parable answers that question by a call to patience, directing attention away from the current situation to the coming judgment when it will be made plain who are the true people of God and who are the children of the evil one. God is not in a hurry, and we must be prepared to wait for his time. That's the basic idea of what Christ is teaching here. We must take our eyes off of our current situation, put our eyes on the coming judgment that will one day come, that all things will be revealed, all things will be dealt with, and God is not in a hurry. We're in a hurry, aren't we? We are, especially at the speed of pace of life these days, we are in a hurry all the time, but God is not in a hurry, and we must be patient and wait for God's timing. Now, I want you to see something that maybe gets missed, and I want you to notice that the emphasis in this parable and in the explanation is on the weeds and not on the good seed. So often in, in reading Scripture, we immediately begin with, what's for me? What. Do I learn from this? And how do I apply this teaching and truth to my life for what I need to do? We are a people, and I put myself in this camp all the time. We are a people of doing. We want to do. We want to know what God's word tells us to do. And we want to get about doing the Father's business. But if you came this morning to hear a sermon about all the things we're supposed to do, then you've come the wrong Sunday. Because the emphasis emphasis of this passage is not about us doing anything. And in fact, the emphasis of this passage is not about us at all. It's about the weeds. It's about the sons of the evil one. Now, there's much for us to learn and much for us to grow. But we need to understand that this parable, as the disciples called it, the parable of the weeds, not the parable of the good seed, must be read primarily as a parable warning of judgment. So this is a parable more for those who are not in the kingdom than those who are. Those who are the sons of God, uh, more than those who are the sons of the evil one and not the sons of God. But for the sons of God, it is an explanation of why there are weeds still in Christ's kingdom. So let's look at this parable and its explanation. And I'm going to be going back and forth, taking information from both sections of Scripture to kind of walk through the the parable and and the explanation together. So, the first thing we see are two sowers. Two sowers. If you're taking notes, that's point one. Two sowers. And I want you to see throughout this passage the strong dichotomy between, uh, between the two. So, once again, right away, we are faced with the absolute destruction of the myth of neutrality, the fabled third way. We've got one group, and we've got another group, and then we've got a group in the middle. We have some sort of group in this world that is neutral. They're not for God, but they're not against God. They're, they're not saved, but they're not really lost. The Bible makes it clear, and if you look at this entire passage, there's only two. There's not three. There's not one. Two every time. And Christ has been making this point over and over. There are only two options Everything is divided clearly into two categories. And my question for you, and this is the most important question, which one are you? In which group are you? So we have two sowers. The first one is a man. That's what it says in verse 24. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man. And who is this man? Well, the explanation in verse 37 is he is the son of man. So the man in the parable represents the Son of Man, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, the Son of Man who is speaking this very parable. This man is the owner of the field. He is the master of the house. And Christ makes it clear, he makes it explicit that the field in verse 38, the field is the world. Therefore, the man who is the owner of the field is the owner of the world. He is the master of this entire universe. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And this field is referred to as his kingdom down in verse 41. He will gather out of his kingdom. So this world is a part of his kingdom. The kingdom of heaven encompasses the world right now in reference to Christ's sovereign rule and reign currently. Does Jesus Christ rule and reign in this world now? Or does the devil rule and reign in this world now? Jesus Christ, this is his kingdom. And if it is his kingdom, that should cause you to have the very struggle that the disciples had, which is if this is his kingdom, this world right now is his kingdom. Now, it's not, it's not, it's not his kingdom in its fullness. But if this is where he rules and reigns, why are things as they are right now? Why do the wicked flourish and prosper in the kingdom of Jesus Christ? Why does it appear as if the church of Jesus Christ is losing, is failing, is shrinking if Christ is king? But the truth is, is that this field is not the church. Very carefully, we have to understand that. Many, many good men and good preachers have taken this and applied this parable to the church. And if you do that, then you can talk very quickly and openly about the fact that the church is a mixed multitude. We have Christians and non-Christians in the church. In the field, which is the church, you have weeds and you have wheat. And we can't always tell who they are. And at the end of the kingdom, Christ will do the separating. That is not what Christ says. He is so explicit here, you can't miss it. The field is the world. It's not the church. and We must keep those things separate. You can't confuse the two. That distinction must be maintained. So keep that in mind as we go through this. Now the man, as I said before, this man is the son of man. And Jesus began calling himself that. He called himself the Son of Man first in Matthew eight twenty, And now this is the eighth time that Christ has referred to himself this way in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, if you understand the book of Daniel, you'll understand that the Son of Man is a reference to the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7, specifically verses 13 and 14. And in Daniel 7, the Son of Man is a human figure presented with divine privileges. In Daniel, the Son of Man has universal authority, has universal sovereignty. He is the divine judge executing divine judgment. So you have to know the Old Testament understanding of the Son of Man to understand what Christ is saying about himself. He's a a divine figure with universal authority and sovereignty, and he is a divine judge executing divine judgment. Who is Jesus Christ? This is always the first question, especially when we come to the Gospels. In every passage, you must begin with the question, who is Jesus Christ? Like I said already, we get so focused in understanding what the application, what the truth is, and the application is for me, for us, for right now, that we can so quickly move over the fact of who Christ is. So what is Christ saying about himself in this passage? You must listen to all of the references to his divinity. He, Jesus Christ, is the owner of the world. He is the master of the house. He is the director of the harvest. Jesus Christ is claiming authority over angels and the fact that he will judge the world at the end of time. He says, I will send my reapers, who are the reapers? Angels, to gather my harvest and I will judge So any religion or any false teacher or any cult that claims the fact that Jesus Christ is not God misses how often in so many ways, even in the parables, he refers to himself in divine ways you can't miss. Who else directs the harvest at the end of the age besides God himself? Who who else directs angels? Who else has divine authority and universal sovereignty? To listen only to this parable and the explanation and to say that Jesus Christ doesn't claim to be God is to misread the scripture. Now, it's, 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 it's implicit in such a way that you can miss it. But once you understand that he's referring to himself, it shines. It's impossible to read the scripture and not see Christ as God and Christ as king. Well, that's the first sower. Who's the second sower? Well, the second sower is the enemy of this man. And in the explanation, he is the devil. Verse 39. So the second sower is his enemy. He is the devil. This is Satan, also referred to in this passage as the evil one in verse 38. Notice that this sower is crafty and stealthy. He doesn't sow his own field because he doesn't own a field. The field is the world and the field is Christ's so he doesn't have a field, but he's working in the field of Jesus Christ. He's working in this world. He is crafty. He is stealthy. He works in such a way that no one knows he was there. He goes unnoticed. In, in many ways, Satan isn't looking for any credit or any recognition. But what we need to see immediately is the difference between the two sowers. One owns the field, the other one opposes the ownership in the field. He works against it. He is the opposition. We need to know that there is opposition to Christ's kingdom. There's opposition in this world. We need to know who the opposition is and how he works. Christ rules. Satan is opposing, but Christ is the king. So those are two sowers. Next we need to see two seeds. Two seeds. In the first parable of Matthew 13, the parable of the sower, which is familiar to many of you, even if you weren't here in August, you probably know the basic outline. The issue in that parable is not the seed, it's the soil. The seed is always the same There's four different soils. But here, the issue is not the soil. The issue is not the field. The issue is the seed. We have two seeds sown by two different sowers. And so Christ is very happy to use agricultural examples and illustrations, which might not be as easy for us to understand because many of us uh, lack basic agricultural skills and knowledge. And I put myself in that camp. But I'll try to give some explanation as we walk through this a little bit. So the problem is, you have to notice, isn't the soil, it is the seed. And there, In this parable, there are two seeds. The good seed are the sons of the kingdom. Christ makes it explicit. The sower who sows the good seed is the son of man. The good seed are the sons of the kingdom. The good seed is that which sprouts up as wheat. The good seed are, are wheat seeds that sprout up as wheat, and these, this wheat bears grain. And so we understand that the sons of the kingdom are seeds that grow up into fruit-bearing wheat. Verse 43 makes it more explicit what they are. These are righteous. The righteous, the wheat, will shine like the sun in the day of judgment. So the wheat, the seeds, the good seed are the sons of the kingdom. They are the righteous. And this is Christians. Notice carefully in the parable, we are not the servants. We are not the servants. We are the seed. So keep that in mind. In fact, there is no direct fulfillment of the servants given. So if you go to Christ's explanation, he never tells us who the servants are in the story because the servants have no point in his point. They're a part of the illustration, but they're not a part of the explanation. They are, in a sense, extraneous to the point. We like to see ourselves as the servants who are going to Christ asking the questions, but that's not the right understanding of the parable. So there's no direct fulfillment of that. The focus is on the Son of Man, what He does, what God does, not what we do. We're just seed that is planted in the soil that sprouts and bears fruit. Now, we'll talk about some of that in a minute but notice that the action given is not our action but the action of the sower who is Christ and what he does the sower and the reapers what they do but it's not us so we are inactive in a sense in the point of the parable well we also have a second seed we have weeds and these weeds as Christ says are the sons of the evil one so here we have the opposite comparison given the direct opposite to the good seed we have the evil seed we have the weeds Now, he doesn't say that they are evil seeds. It's just, they're just referred to as weeds. But everyone knows that you don't just start with a weed. You have to start with a seed. And if the enemy were to go into the field of Christ and just plant fully grown weeds, you think we would have noticed the problem right away. So what the enemy does is he goes into the field and he plants weed seeds. And so the wheat and the weeds in the parable, they grow up together. And the weeds and the wheat look so much alike that you can't tell that they are weeds until they sprout. So have you, have you had that problem with your, with your flower beds? Now, I don't have a garden. My wife has done a garden in the past. I don't have a garden, so I don't know as much about gardening as I do about flower beds because it's my responsibility to pull the weeds in the flower beds. Have you ever gone to a flower bed in the spring and looked at what is coming up and say, which one are flowers and which one are weeds? I want to get my weeds early, but I can't pull them until I know for sure what they are. So when we first moved into where we live right now, we had a flower bed right out in front with rocks, and it was a complete disaster. We moved in in April, and so by May it was just... And and, uh, so Deanne Spriggs came out to our house uninvited, But welcomed, but welcomed. She came out and she sat in that flower bed and raked and pulled and did all this stuff. You know what she found? She found all kinds of flowers in with all of these weeds and grass and all these things. And she went through there and got, as far as I could tell, every weed seed, every weed thing out of there. And all of a sudden, flowers were blooming and sprouting as it got later in the year. And so for the first couple of years, I would take pictures of how beautiful it was because I maintained it. But the longer we've gone without that expertise, the more weeds have stayed and the flowers are struggling. And I haven't been able to keep up with it because I don't always know the difference. And because so many times, some weeds look so much, the leaves look so much like the leaves of the wheat that that you can't tell the difference until they start to sprout. And that's the example here. So it looks like the whole field is just wheat until they start to bear grain. And then immediately when they start to sprout and bear grain, you can tell by their fruit whether they're wheat or weeds. Now, are we going to learn from that example in the scripture? Can we apply that and understand what that says about us? How do we tell who the Christians are, the sons of the kingdom, the sons of God, and how do we tell who the sons of the evil one are? The sons of the evil one... These weeds, they sprout at the same rate. They look like wheat for so long. But when the plants came up and bore grain, that's when the weeds were noticeable. All of a sudden, the servants go out in the field and say, Whoa, we've we've got a lot of weeds out here. How do we know? Because we can tell by the fruit they're producing. So what does Jesus Christ say about these weeds? Verse 41, they are lawbreakers. They are lawbreakers. In the kingdom, in this world, there are two groups of people. There are the lawbreakers and the righteous. Verse 41 and verse 43. Which one are you? I asked you that question to begin with. Which one are you? Are you in the group that is differentiated by righteousness? Righteousness is the noticeable fruit of the wheat. Lawbreaking is the noticeable fruit of the weeds. Remember, there are only two groups. There's not a righteous group, a law-breaking group, and a half righteous, half law-breaking group that kind of straddles the fence in the middle. That's what everyone in the world likes to think. They like to think, "Well, I'm not really a Christian. I don't really trust in Christ. I don't really live for Christ. I want to live for myself, but I'm not a lawbreaker. You're going to call me a lawbreaker?" You can't say that about me. I keep the law a lot. I mean, I haven't killed anybody. I haven't raped anybody. I haven't molested any children. I haven't stolen a million dollars from anybody. You know, I, I, I'm a pretty good person. Now, now I've, I've done a few bad things, so I'm, I'm, I'm kind of in the law-breaking category. But there's a lot of good things I've done. I give to charity every now and then. You know, they ring the bell at, in front of Walmart, and, and I go by, and, and I fish in my pocket, and I get out that, those 75 cents I had left over, and I drop that in there. That's, that's a good thing. I was considerate uh, to the person in, in the store who told me I had to wear a mask. I didn't get mad or angry. I, I, I just was, was very kind to them. So I've got all kinds of goodness in my heart. And, uh, and, I, and I, I only drive 10 miles an hour over the speed limit, so I don't get tickets. You know, I'm, I'm pretty good. No, th- there's, there's only two groups. Now, what we have to understand is I'm not saying that people who are the righteous in this parable the righteous who are the sons of the kingdom, those who are Christians, are not perfectly righteous. If, if anything, Christians understand their sinfulness more than those who are lawbreakers. We, we see the depths of our sin. The longer we're Christians, the more we grow in holiness, the more we see the depth of unrighteousness in our hearts and all that God has to do to transform us. But there's only two groups. Which one are you? Are you one of the righteous or are you one of the lawbreakers? And as The sons of the kingdom, we must recognize, we must be clear on this fact that all humanity is split into these two groups. So your family, your co-workers, your friends, your neighbors, everybody is in one of these two groups. So if your neighbors, friends, co-workers, family are not the righteous, if they're not Christians, then they are... Unrighteous, They are lawbreakers. They are lost. They need Christ. They need the gospel. You can't say, well, they're pretty decent people. Maybe God will let them into heaven. They're pretty good. You know, maybe, they're, maybe they are saved. Eh, I'm not sure, but this is the motivation for the seeds planted in the world to share the gospel. Ignorance is not bliss for the unbeliever. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. You may say, I never knew I was a weed. I never knew I was a son of the evil one. I never knew I was really considered by God a lawbreaker. I didn't, I've never heard that before. But your ignorance didn't change your condition. Not knowing the truth doesn't mean it's not true about you. And if you look to the end of this parable, you will understand how detrimental, how deadly, how eternally devastating that truth is. And we have to, as Christians, understand that those people need the gospel. They need the good news of Jesus Christ. They need to hear who they are their true condition, so that they will repent of their sin and turn to the Son of Man to be saved. It's eternally deadly for them. And we have to understand that more than they do initially, or if we don't understand that, what won't we do? We'll stay silent. We'll maintain friendships and relationships because we don't want to lose friends or have broken family relationships. We'll just keep the truth to ourselves, hoping that somehow they'll just come to that truth on their own. They don't see it. They don't understand. They're ignorant. They're, they're blissfully ignorant, but it's not a blissful ignorance that will last forever. Point three. It's a summary point. I kind of threw the rest of the twos in here. Two questions, two answers, two destinations. Notice it's twos all the way through. So two questions. We'll start with those. The first question is, how are there weeds in the master's field? How are there weeds in the master's field? The servants recognize that there's a problem. Anyone who has a field expects some weeds to sprout. You can't keep all the weeds out. That's normal. So the amount or the ratio of weeds must have been so unexpected and startling that the servants question why things are as they are. There are so many weeds in this field, and the first question they ask is, is there a problem with the seed? So what do they say? They come to the master and say, did you not sow good seed in your field? If you sowed good seed, why do we have so many weeds? You must have had mixed seed. You must have had weeds in your seed. Now, is that true or not? Was there a problem with the seed? Well, if there's a problem with the seed, then isn't there a problem with the sower? Because who's the one responsible for choosing the seed? In fact, in this parable, who's the one responsible for sowing the seed? Now, we can understand that the the master of the house probably didn't sow all the seed by himself. He used his servants. But he's the one responsible. He's the one who, if there is bad seed, he's the one responsible for it. So if we look into the world, the world we live in, the devil's successful opposition calls into question the ability, power, wisdom, and plan of Christ Christ. The servants question the master, the owner, the sower. And this is what we do so often when our expectations are not met. When things don't happen as we thought they should. When they don't happen in the timing that we thought they should happen in. We say, Lord, if you're really in control, if you're really sovereign, if you really are in charge of all these things, then why are things happening this way? Why is it so wrong? Why are there so many evil people? Why are they triumphing in your kingdom? Lord, we don't understand. There must be a problem with you, your your plans, your ways. Is that true? Is there a problem with the seed? Is there a problem with the sower? Well, if it isn't a problem with the seed or the sower, then how did this happen? Where do the weeds come from? What's the answer? An enemy has done it. That's what the master says. An enemy has done it. Notice carefully here, the master isn't perplexed, stumped, or mystified. The master knows what happened and can explain what happened. So it is not a problem with the sower, Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. It's not a problem with the seed, the sons of men that he has planted, the sons of the kingdom that he has planted. It's not a problem with the field, the world. It's not even a problem with the servants. And this is the problem with trying to read too much into parables. You see the servants are sleeping and you say, Ah, look at That's why the devil could come in and so seeds because the servants were sleeping. We can't sleep on the job. It's so easy to take things that aren't meant to come out of the parables and do that with them. Don't, don't do that. Typically, a parable is almost always about one point. There might be multiple applications, but it's about one point. And the one point here is the judgment that comes at the end of time. And what is going to happen to the weeds Now, this is the way that things are. The master has an enemy. This enemy is at work. He's trying to destroy the master's harvest. He's trying to ruin the master's plan. And if you think that this is crazy, you say, this illustration is kind of nutty. When did you ever know of someone intentionally going into the field of someone else and sowing weeds in their field? Nobody does anything like that. Really? Really? Actually, they did it so often in the time of Christ, and it still happens today, I bet, in some places. It happens so often in the day of Christ that the Romans had a law against doing it. If you got caught doing this, there were severe penalties for messing with someone's harvest. It's a serious issue. It's a real illustration. And we must not forget that that real illustration has a real outworking in this world. The devil is at work, he works in this world. And his success is surprising and mystifying if we don't know the scriptures. If we don't understand the scriptures from beginning to end, then we look at life as we see it in front of us. We look at the world as we see it in front of us. We see it and we don't make sense of why evil triumphs so often. Why so few people are Christians. Why the church is so small. We'll talk about that next week into another parable. But if we know the scriptures, and we know the enemy, and we know the king, and we know the sower, and we know these things, then we can make sense of why the world appears as it is. And we can know that this is not the end. The end has not yet come. We know there's something still to come. So important for us to realize. So that was the first question. The second question, should we pull up the weeds now? Should we pull up the weeds now? That's what the servants ask. Should we do this now? And the answer is this. No, this isn't the time, and this isn't your job. This isn't the time, and this isn't your job. So what Christ is saying is that this time period isn't harvest time, and the servants aren't the reapers. Whoever these servants are, we don't even know who they are specifically. They're not the reapers. He says specifically in verse 39, The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels of the Son of Man. The harvest is the close of this age, and the reapers are angels. So if this isn't the time, and this isn't anybody's job now, what is the time now, and what is our role now? Well, this is the age of the church This is the age of evangelism. God has planted his sons in the world. He has planted churches in the world to preach the gospel and make disciples of all the nations. That's what we are to be about. We are the sons of the kingdom planted in this world to do the role and the thing that God has called us to do. The time of judgment is at the end of this age. And even then, we won't be the reapers. We're not going to be the one making the judgment, making the decision. That is in God's hands and his angels' hands alone. We must understand as God's disciples, as sons of the kingdom, that we are unable to render a final judgment on the spiritual condition of people in the world. Christians lack the analytical skill to fully and finally judge anyone's spiritual condition. This is not our job, and we're not equipped for it. So don't do what you're not equipped to do. Don't do what you're not called to do. Now, if we were to wrongly apply this to the church... As the church is the field and the church is a mixed multitude and we're to not bring any judgment to those in the church and let all that judgment come at the end, if that were to be our wrong understanding of this passage, then we, will go, we would have a tremendous struggle with Matthew 18 in just a few chapters. Church discipline in light of this parable, if it's applied to the church, makes no sense if we're supposed to just let weeds and wheat grow up in the church together. We have no authority to make those kind of judgments in the field that is the world. But we do have authority, and we do have responsibility, and we do have commands to make that judgment where? Here, in the church. In fact, we're called to discipline those who are unrepentant, those who are practicing lawlessness and unrighteousness, those who will not turn from their sin. We're commanded to remove the evil one, the leaven, the unrepentant sinner from the congregation, to purge them from the church, 1 Corinthians 5. So the very analytical judgment that Christians are not to make in the world, we are commanded to make in the church. So we must keep the distinctions clear. We are not to go out and judge every person in the world and make the final judgment now to pull up the weeds and figure out who the weed is. In the church, though, we are to make sure that all those who profess faith who are a part of our congregation are living as they should to the best of our ability. And we've been given that authority and that judgment here. So two questions and two answers. Now two destinations. Two destinations, one point. Will it be the fiery furnace or the kingdom of the Father? That's the question. Will you, personally, I'm talking to you. I'm talking about everyone else. I'm talking about you. Will you end up in the fiery furnace or will you end up in the kingdom of the Father? There's only two destinations. They're clear. And this is the focus of the entire parable. The end of the age is the time of judgment. And this judgment comes at the second coming of Christ. And Christ will have his angels divide all of mankind into weeds and wheat. Everything will be divided, and God's judgment will be perfect. There will be no confusion. The angels will come and separate the weeds and the wheat perfectly. And the weeds are the lawbreakers who will be gathered and cast, as it says, into the fiery furnace, verse 42. The lawbreakers that are the weeds, are thrown into the fiery furnace and that place is a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth and this is a reference to the place of eternal sorrow weeping eternal misery gnashing of teeth and it's equated it's it's illustrated with the miserable horrible misery of a burning in a fiery furnace now the wheat they are the righteous who will be gathered into the kingdom of their father. And that's represented by the barn in the parable. But I want you to notice clearly that these two desti- destinations are polar opposites. The burning of the lawbreakers will parallel the shining of the righteous. If the burning is not an endless torment, but only a temporary punishment that ends in annihilation, then how is the shining of the righteous any different? Some Christians want to understand that the burning, fiery furnace of judgment, the weeping and the gnashing of teeth, is only temporary. That God's judgment on sinners, on the wicked, on lawbreakers, will only last for a time, and then they will be annihilated. Yet, at the same time, they want to believe that Christians will be in the presence of God, enjoying the presence of the Father, and shining His righteous for eternity, forever. So hell is temporary, heaven is eternal. But can you understand any of that from this parable? Are not the two polar opposites where we have eternal punishment, where the weeping and gnashing of teeth is not said to end, but to go on forever, or implied to go on forever, and the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father? Is there an end to that? No, there's not. So if hell is temporary and there's an ending, why not for heaven? These are polar opposites. Every place in Scripture, they're set apart each other. Eternal life and eternal death. Eternal judgment and eternal glory and blessing. We would like, we, we think it's, we think it's generous or, or merciful to think that hell would only be a place of temporary punishment. Because we don't understand the horrible, infinite price of sin and the horrible price that had to be paid by Christ on the cross. Rebellion against an infinite God deserves and earns an infinite punishment. And when we minimize sin so that we only need a little bit of punishment to pay for that, we don't understand who God is. We don't understand what sin is. We don't understand rebellion. We don't understand these things. Don't minimize the wickedness of sin to appear merciful because you would only punish for a little while and it appears that God would punish forever. No, eternal punishment is deserved, it is earned, it is righteous, it is good. And so, what's the warning? He who has ears, let him hear. So, do you have ears this morning? Have you checked? Do you have ears as big as mine? Hopefully not. Have you checked to see if you have Are you hearing? Do you hear God's truth? Do you hear the warning? Do you hear the judgment? Do you, do you hear what's going to happen to those who are not sons of the kingdom, sons of righteousness, righteousness sons of God? So as we look around the world, we have to Have ears to hear what Christ is saying. We must not misunderstand God's patience with the unrepentant. We must not misunderstand God's patience with lawbreakers. Whether we are the righteous or the lawbreakers, we must not misunderstand God's patience. So one of my favorite passages, I I, I share this a lot recently, especially from Romans chapter two. You can write it down, look it up later. Romans two, three through five. Do you suppose, sinner, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. You say, well, I've gotten away with it so long. I've lived a good life. I've lived a happy life and I break God's law all the time. Nothing bad happens to me. I'm living the good life. All of you Christians who restrict yourself and follow all of God's laws and, and have to do all these good things and you, you can't live you know, like you're supposed to live, you're just missing out. Nothing bad's happened to me yet. You somehow think that God's patience and forbearance with you and your wickedness and your sin and breaking his law and rebelling against him is, is going to last forever as if God can't do anything, as if God won't do anything. But this is the time of repentance. He's being merciful with you. He's giving you more time to repent. And the more you cast aside his patience, the more you say, I'll just live how I want. There is no God. There is no hell. There is no punishment for sin. In fact, there's no such thing as sin. I'll do what I want, how I want, when I want, and I don't care. Nothing bad's gonna happen to me. The longer you do that, it says you are storing up wrath and more wrath. This is a parable of warning, a warning of eternal judgment on those who refuse to repent. Those who have turned away from Christ. Jesus Christ came because God loves mankind. He loves people. So Christ came and died on the cross for sinners so that sinners could turn from their sin, trust in Jesus Christ, in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Trust only in him as the payment for their sin, as the satisfaction for God's wrath on their wickedness. And they could live forever, shining as sons of the kingdom of their father forever. So the gospel is preached. The warning is clear. If you walk out of here refusing to repent, you only store up more wrath. So if you're not a Christian, hear this warning. Understand that you are a lawbreaker. See the judgment that awaits you. And turn to Jesus and cry out for salvation today. Hear this warning. Understand that you are a lawbreaker. See the judgment that awaits you and turn to Jesus and cry out for salvation today. Become a son of the kingdom Today, this parable was given so that if you had ears, you would hear and you would repent. Now, if you've already done that, if you're already a Christian, you've already repented, you need to understand some things as well. Understand who the enemy is, understand how the opposition works. We must trust that God is accomplishing and will accomplish His sovereign plan no matter how things look now. This is not the end. God's plan has not all come together yet. We are still in the middle. Trust him. And then we must know our role, know your role and obey your master in doing what he has called you to do now. We do have work to do. We do have the gospel to preach. We do have discipling to be done, discipling the nations. And so that is clear. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask for your mercy in this moment to awaken sinners to their need of repentance, to awaken Christians to the need of sharing the gospel, being wheat that bears fruit, the fruit that is righteousness. So Lord, do your work in us at this moment. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.